0: We welcome Christina Baker-Klein to our program to discuss Orphan Trains. Good afternoon, Christina.
1: Good afternoon.
0: Christina Baker-Klein is author of five novels. She's a native of England. She lives in the New York City metropolitan area, but also spends time elsewhere in our land, Minnesota and Maine, among others. And her best-selling novel, Orphan Train, is based on extensive research she has done into the subject of America's orphan trains. Her book is the Amsterdam Reads Selection for 2015. Christina, what was the orphan train movement?
1: The orphan train movement was this period in American history, 75 years from 1854 to 1929, when 250,000 children were sent on trains from the East Coast to the Midwest in a labor program. Children were between the ages of 2 and 14, and they were um, taken in by usually farmers who needed mm. labor, who needed help on the farm.
0: Mm. I mean, it's remarkable. I mean, your book is a, is a bestseller, and there have been other media treatments of the, of the orphan trains, but uh, honestly, until we decided up here to read your book, I'd never heard of this.
1: I know it 's pretty amazing. I always say that this is a story that has been hidden in plain sight in American history, uh, and the truth is, the history of our country, in fact, the history of most countries, is not the history of the poor and the dispossessed, so there are many reasons that we don 't know more about the orphan trains and i you know I talk about those often when i 'm giving talks, but Um, One of the biggest is just that it was never a part of the history that we learn in classrooms.
0: Mm. How did you get interested in the subject?
1: Well, I was lucky enough to stumble on this story when um, I was visiting my in-laws in Fargo, North Dakota, and um, we were stuck inside during a snowstorm, and my mother-in-law opened this book that was a celebration of the small town of Jamestown, North Dakota, where she had grown up. And there was an article about the orphan trains and it featured her father who mm. rode on a train with his siblings, his four siblings, to Jamestown, the small town, and, um, set, you know, made a life there. She never knew anything about it. She knew he had been orphaned, but didn't know any other details. And in the course of my research, I eventually found that he wasn't, he and his siblings weren't on an official orphan train. They, um, they had come there as orphans, but they were um, sort of unofficially there, not from the East Coast, but from Missouri. But at the same time, it highlights how many children were kind of traveling on trains around the country. There were way more even than just the numbers of the orphan trains, which are quite sizable as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was fascinated. I'd never heard of this. I'd never studied it, and I realized that it was a really big story that people were not talking about, and so I started researching it.
0: Now, your book, which is an, is a novel, work of fiction, follows one young girl who has, it seems to me, she has bad to horrible experiences in her first <laughs> two placements, generally a, a good Placement in a third home. Is that kind of a typical experience or is there no typical experience of the orphan train riders?
1: You know, that is a great question. I actually think what I tried to do was to create an experience for my train rider that was typ- typical. A lot of train riders ended up in multiple homes for many, many reasons. Transitions were often very difficult for these children. Um, they had had often no stability in their own lives, and it took a, 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 a lot of work for them to assimilate. There was also a lot of prejudice against them. People were skeptical and even um, sort of prejudiced against, I suppose, the orphan train riders, thinking that they were calling them vermin and trash from the streets of New York. So it was difficult for these children a lot of times, and some of them had really happy stories. And some of them had really terrible stories. The vast majority had a combination. They would go into multiple homes. They would have their names changed, um, several times. And that happened because, uh, you know, if you think about a taking in a dog from the pound, for example, that, you know, <laughs> Deer, yes. people change the names of dogs and it was, there was sort of a similar mentality. Um, so I wanted to give this character Vivian in my story, she starts out as Neve, Irish name that got changed. Um I wanted to give her a path that would have been not unusual for a train rider and um I was very lucky and privileged to write this book at a moment in American history when as when I began the book 4 years ago there were four uh, there were a h- 150 living train riders and today there are fewer than 10. By the end of the year there may be none. They're all between about 95 and 105 years old. So I was able to interview seven living train riders, and I was able to read hundreds of their stories. This wonderful archive, the National Orphan Train Complex in Concordia, Kansas, has all this material and lots of other books. So I say the story's been hidden in plain sight because there is quite a bit of material once you start looking for it. But the, the truth is most people just don't know what to look for, did not know what to look for.
0: As you uh, started to explain, the book is structured so that we we first meet uh, the orphan-trained survivor, if you will, as an older woman, Vivian, but we relive her young life in many flashbacks and counterpoint to that narrative. The older woman knows a teenager named Molly, who's also an orphan, uh, a teenager of today, if you will, and so we can compare the ways of dealing with orphans years ago with today. Do we do a better job now?
1: We do a much better job. Um, we... Children today who are in the foster care system have checks and balances. There are laws and rules governing who can take someone in, and uh, they're checked up on. There are lots of things that are better. But with that said, it is still very hard to be a child who's been abandoned or dispossessed or feels unwanted. And. The truth is that the feelings that the orphan train riders had are no different than the feelings that children have today uh, in the foster care system who um, feel abandoned. And so that's part of what I I think is really interesting about this story and perhaps why it's resonated with people. Because even today, it's not easy to be a child who's in that system, um, no matter how well intentioned people are, and no matter how ultimately well treated these children are, they can still feel that they've been sort of, they're still at the mercy of a system that they don't understand.
0: Mm. And you uh, uh, told us that there are uh, still some survivors of the train riders. I, I was really, uh, well, I don't know, shocked, but I mean, it was. Uh, I guess you're just doing the math that the orphan train riders are indeed dying out. How many did you say like fewer than a hundred are left today? Fewer than 10, fewer Fewer than than 10. 10.
1: I mean, and they're all between 95 and 105 years old, the ones who are still alive. So just think about how lucky I was to be able to, to, to spend time with living train riders who could tell me their stories
0: Mm. But when there were more of the um, train riders, and you say there are 250,000 kids that uh, mm-hmm. took part in this uh, process, they had quite an active, or, or maybe still have among their descendants, quite an active uh, organization. I, the one thing I... Well, p-
1: for a long time th- they did not. Um, for a long time the train riders felt a great stigma about what they had been through, and they didn't talk about it. One reason we don't know much about, and we didn't know much about this story for so long, is that the train riders themselves were reluctant to share their story, feeling great shame about it. They had grown up feeling that they weren't allowed to speak about what had happened to them. So um, that's that's sort of an uh, uh, an intense legacy that took me a long time to wrap my head around. Um, what happened is that eventually their descendants started asking questions like. Why do you have no birth certificate? Why do you have no birthday? Why do you look nothing like our other relatives? Mm-hmm. Why even do you have an accent? You know, in some cases, these children um, these children would have, be taken in when they could already, of course, read and write or talk, and they, ha- they still carried accents with them. So it was when the descendants started asking pointed questions that they really wanted answers to that the story began... To come out, and also the descendants were really proud of what their uh, relatives had gone through, and so that also was sort of a uh, an exciting and cleansing um, opportunity for the train riders to have a new lease on their stories.
0: It's interesting. I mean, I, I write about local history up here, and I find a kind of a similar phenomenon. Uh, pe- people are always interested. You know, I, I don't know if I hate to say it in uh, murders and things like that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I find that after one or two generations uh, go by, the the descendants are often the ones that are are so eager to tell me about that murder that great you know their great yeah, great grandfather exactly right. was hung for. Yeah,
1: it's it's. Um it becomes a story that the family can kind of chew over and share, and it becomes part of family lore, and it doesn't feel quite as personal anymore. Mm.
0: We're speaking with Christina Baker-Klein. She is author of the best-selling novel Orphan Train. Now, the program, when it, when it began, you, you've got a couple of uh, uh, characters in your book, who are officials or more than two really but uh, officials of the of the orphan train organization and i gather yeah. there there was there were, there were basically two i mean the, and the chief among them was something called the Ch- uh, children's aid society i guess what my question yeah. is from what you've looked into about the orphan train movement were these good-hearted people you know trying to uh, do good works or w- was there any kind of ulterior motive involved
1: both um, these were the, the founder of the Children's Aid Society who came up with the whole idea of the orphan trains is a man named Charles Loring Brace, and he was a reformer. He was a Methodist minister who looked around in 1853 and saw that there were 30,000 children living on the streets, and he wanted to help. He wanted to do something, and at the time, as insane perhaps as it sounds to us now, um, you know, children were property and poor children were labor, pure and simple. So his idea was that these poor children would work and that they would have jobs and that that was a good thing Um, and that he was sending them to a life of industry and um, fine, moral, upstanding, you know, citizenry in the Midwest. He saw the Midwest as this sort of bucolic wonderland for them the children um and furthermore his original impulse was sort of evangelical he wanted these heathen children these catholic jewish non-practicing whatever to get off the streets of new york and to get into good solid protestant preferably methodist homes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. so that was definitely part of it um wanting you know to kind of save the souls of these poor children and um That didn't last very long because eventually the Catholic organization got involved, the foundling, and also he ran out of Methodist homes fairly quickly, so couldn't (laughs) keep that up for for too, too long.
0: It's interesting, as as we're preparing for the year uh, for Amsterdam Reads, one of the things I was tasked with was uh, coming up with some local angle, and Mm -hmm. here in uh, Amsterdam, or in Amsterdam, New York, We had a children's home, which, uh, and just like that, there's still a Children's Aid Society in connection with the orphan train movement. Even though there are no more orphan trains, even though we no longer have a children's home, we still have the organization. The exact title of it escapes me. That uh, was founded to create the children's home, which was a, a I guess you'd say, a standard orphanage. And I had some dealing with it. My sister worked there. Uh, during the during the summers, and I'd sometimes accompany her because she was also watching me during the day, and uh, it, it was, you know, such, I mean, different from the orphan trains, but certainly different from today. I mean, it, uh, what amazed me, looking at the history of it, there were basically three matrons, they called them, that were in charge for 50 to 100 kids, you know, that were uh, in this uh, one building.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Um, I know. It's quite amazing when you think of how little oversight there was and um, how many children were taken of care of by, by very few people. Um, and in New York City, the orphanages were overrun. They were so crowded in the 1850s and 60s that Charles Loring Brace had to house children in the local jail, um, just in cells with prisoners, just to have a place to put them. So the problem of these children was quite enormous, and um, there there did not seem to be an easy solution.
0: We've uh, focused on New York City. I mean, did most of the kids come from New York City?
1: Yeah, most of them did. They came through Grand Central, but there were also, you know, there's anecdotal evidence of children coming through Baltimore and Boston and Philadelphia and other. Points on the East Coast, um, and those were not as as big. But an interesting thing is that you know, the, according to the sort of official orphan train rider information, the trains went from, the official trains went from the as I told you the East Coast to the Midwest. But actually, a lot of these children ended up in upstate New York. A lot of them. And when I do a present, I have a presentation that I give, and I have a slideshow that's just wonderful, filled with documents and photographs and everything. And uh, it shows. I have a map. I have two maps that show that a lot of children went to upstate New York. So that was interesting too. They went to farms. I was giving a presentation in New York actually um, a while ago, and. There was a woman in the audience at like who was about 94, and she was with her daughter, and she said that she had grown up on a farm in upstate New York and that every summer they had orphan train riders come, boys, to work the farm. She said, those boys had the most marvelous time working on our farm. And I thought, I would really like to interview those boys and hear their story.
0: Yes. Now, do you know, I mean, uh, we're in the eastern uh, New York, the Mohawk Valley. I mean, uh, up right. there, or do you know any specifics of where they went in uh, New York?
1: I don't. I only have anecdotal stories, but there are, I you know, and, and here's one problem with this whole story: um, their the record keeping was very spotty. For many reasons, they did not keep track of the children. The truth is, they didn't want these children to be tracked back. They didn't want anyone to come and get them. Once the decision was made to put children on the orphan train, Mm -hmm. there was no turning back and the parents were supposed to have no contact with them whatsoever. And by the way, the term orphan train is a a bit of a misnomer. Um, Only 30% of the children, from what we can tell, were actually orphaned. The rest were taken out of homes, they were runaways, they were abandoned, and they were even Mm -hmm. plucked off the streets by the police parents would tell their children not to go out after dark in new york because you might get whisked away into a paddy wagon and taken put on an orphan train
0: really or at the very least they were uh, you know i think the current lingo or was uh, a few years ago a pins a person in need of services you know for yeah, various yes, reasons Yes, that's
1: right that's right really? Now, so, why no yeah, so I mean, so record keeping was spotty so we don't have exact numbers
0: Didn't mean to interrupt you by next line of thought was why did the orphan train stop in fact it says you, they started in the 1853 end in 1929 a specific date I mean was that it It was the end of it right then Uh it ended in
1: 1929 yes um there was a, yes it was a specific end date Um it it's very interesting, and that's part of my. And I, I don't even know if I'm coming to visit you people, but um, I've been, you know, talking all over the country about it. There are a lot of reasons that the orphan trains ended in 1929, but one of the most interesting is that um, their travel, the travel of these children, was subsidized in part by the railroad companies that wanted bodies to go to the Midwest. They needed to populate these barren locales. And so they paid to put the children on the trains. And in 1929, they built their last depot, and they didn't need to do it anymore. So part of the reason, a big part of the reason that the trains stopped running was economic. Um, and, you know, the tide was turning a little bit on public opinion, um, although as far as New York was concerned, it was sort of out of sight, out of mind. There wasn't much... Of a backlash on this end, there was more of a backlash in the Midwest, um, as I mentioned. Prejudice against the train riders and the sense mm-hmm. that, as with any new immigrant group, quite frankly, um, you know that these 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 immigrants were spoiling this their their kind of bucolic ideal. So there was there was prejudice of all kinds.
0: Let me bring up a couple of. Um you know, other in- institutions which maybe aren't in, in any kind of favor uh, and and ask you to c- compare them to the orphan train movement. I mean it's occurred to me I'm sure it's occurred to others or maybe it hasn't. I mean this sounds to some extent like it could be indentured servitude which I believe mm-hmm. brought a lot of uh, immigrants from Europe to America you know you had to work off the uh, the
1: right. You know,
0: the, your passage or is it anything at all like slavery?
1: Yeah so As I show in the slideshow, too, um, in many instances, train riders actually replaced slaves. Um, Slavery was ending at the times that the trains began, and there was a great need for unpaid labor. And uh, that was definitely part of it, yes. And especially these boys who were... Chosen randomly out of the lineup by anyone who came along. Their teeth, they checked their teeth, they made them run in place, they made them do push-ups. It was, very, it was reminiscent of a slave auction. Mm-hmm. Um, these children were then indentured, was called indenture um, for one of the organizations, until the age of 21, 18 or 21. So imagine that you're a child who's living on the streets of New York you're free. You do what you want, and then suddenly you're indentured to a farmer until the age of twenty-one. It's a pretty radical um, form of indenture, let's just say, um, if not slavery. I mean, it's not slavery because you're eventually free, but but for some children, it was paramount to that.
0: Mm-hmm. In fact, I thought that was uh, you know an exciting, uh, scary part of your book when your uh, your orphan train rider. She flees this home where she's being abused, but you know, in a sense, where's she going to go? I mean, she, right. she's supposed to go back to them.
1: Right. And the people who were the volunteers in the communities who were supposed to be checking up on the orphan train riders had little incentive to, um, to sort of shake things up. They wanted the children whenever possible to stay with the people they were with because otherwise their jobs were much harder. And also, as I mentioned, children were property, it was, it was much less likely that a child would be believed than that a, an adult would be believed. So it was hard for these children to get anyone, you know, to believe them. Furthermore, you know, children suffered abuse and that was sort of, that was that. People didn't talk about it. So a lot of these train riders went through things that nobody will ever know about.
0: Back to the train ride itself. Uh, And you started to talk about this. Uh, Well, first, uh, something uh, new, if you will, or different. Um, uh, On the train ride, and and I gather this was typical, your character, who's an older girl, uh, Mm -hmm. is is sort of put in charge of a baby. I mean, the the older ones cared for the young ones on the train.
1: Yeah, she was nine. And it was typical, as, as you mentioned about the children's homes, on the trains themselves, there were only two chaperones for 10 to 30 children, and there would be young children, babies. And so it was typical that the young girls, would, as young as seven or eight even, would, would be helping to take care of the babies on the train.
0: Mm. And when they get to a, the destinations, uh, you have this uh, cattle call. At uh, first, I think, in a big city. It was a memory service. It was Mo, um, Medis- That's right. Uh, the Twin Cities, Minnesota, but in any event, uh, the, the boys are often the first to go, the strong boys and the infants.
1: Those were by far the most popular. The girls, ages really 9 to 14, were the least popular, the last chosen, for a lot of reasons. They were considered fallen women. They were considered a threat to the female of the household. And, you know, unlike boys who could live and sleep in the barn, um, the girls lived in, were domestic help, usually. They usually lived, had to live, they lived in the house, and they cooked and cleaned and sewed and took care of children. And those jobs, you know, required that you be around the family a lot. So it was, it was hard to be an adolescent girl. And I have to say, it's still hard to be an adolescent in foster care. Yes. Um
0: or maybe just hard to be an adolescent too.
1: It's definitely hard to be an adolescent, but you're not as likely to get chosen as a cherubic baby.
0: Hmm. Well, and and getting back to uh, uh, your point about I think the the appeal to of this story to the general population. I mean, um, all of us, you know, have you know, maybe questions about where we came from and this this and that and mostly it, it, it's a kind of a mundane a story but you often wonder what was the the real story uh that's but right. if you're abandoned for one reason or another either through sickness or intent uh by your uh, by your parents it's uh you know it's quite a loss
1: it's a huge loss and you know it's interesting because one of the groups that's responded to this book um fairly powerfully is um adoption groups um of course foster care groups i knew that would probably happen, but um, I was just meeting with someone the other day who who was adopted, and she uh, said that closed adoption doesn't feel that different in some ways, that you have no idea where you came from, no way to trace it back, and then that, that, that can often feel like a great loss. And certainly that was true of these orphan train riders. They not only were not allowed, or to, they were told they were not allowed to sort of trace back to their families of origin, but their birth certificates were altered, destroyed, and locked up. So they had very little recourse. And there are miracle stories of people finding, you know, their their families, going back to their families, but it wasn't very common because it was so hard to do.
0: Mm. And in fact, in your book, which is set uh, in, you know, the recent uh, past tense, I mean, the past couple of years, um, the the, uh, young woman, the teenager... Uh, Is is using the internet to help her older friend, Uh, but I imagine most of the orphan train riders, you know, were you know were just born too soon for that to be helpful to them.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, unless you just happened, my train rider. I mean, I, I I created this story with her riding on the last year of the trains, 1929, because I wanted to show how technology has has made it possible to do some searching that wasn't possible before.
0: Mm. The um, woman that gave me information on the local orphanage, um, you know, and this just speaks to the point of of where, you know, people come from. Uh, yeah. She, you know, her parents were migrant farm workers, and she said that it was just a Basically, the police that made the decision that she and her brothers had to go to uh, an institution. Their parents weren't fit, and that's right. And
1: that happened a lot. The police would step in and make a decision. Mm. Um, There's another aspect of this that I just think is fascinating. People used to believe that poverty and sort of bad luck, uh, in terms of you know being poor. Yeah, immigrants, was contagious. And so it was seen to be a kind of merciful thing to take children out of homes where their parents were poor or alcoholic or whatever, um, because then they would avoid the contagion. They would escape mm. the disease of their inheritance, essentially. It's a fascinating. All of these layers made it kind of created a situation where this this orphan train idea could take flight and thrive over 75 years.
0: Christina Baker-Klein, I thank you very much uh, for joining us.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to The Historians, our guest Christina Baker-Klein, author of the best-selling novel Orphan Train.